0: Sci-Fi Diner Podcast
1: Serving the latest news In Sci-Fi Multimedia
0: Okay And It was the dawn Of the third age Of mankind Ten years after The Earth-Minbari War The Babylon Project Was a dream given form Its goal To prevent another war By creating a place Where humans and aliens Could work out Their differences peacefully It's a port of call, home away from home for diplomats, hustlers, entrepreneurs, and wanderers. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It can be a dangerous place, but it's our last best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2258. The name of the place is Babylon 5.
1: Hi, Sci-Fi Diner fans. This is the Sci-Fi Diner, but as you might guess, this is not uh, Scott or Miles. Uh, This is... uh Uh-oh. Okay. I don't think we're alone here, Jim. Who are you? What do you want? Well, Scott, it's interesting you should ask those questions because those are the two most important questions of what is probably one of the great science fiction series of all time, Babylon 5. This here is Raul Wibera and...
0: This is Jim Arrowood.
1: And we're going to try and answer some of those questions for you today as we, um, what would you call, hijack the right word, Jim? Or can you think of something a little better?
0: No, we are actually hijacking the Sci-Fi Diner tonight.
1: So, Scott, you can sit back and just listen. And uh, you can thank Jim for this because she said we had to have some words, so here's some words. Babylon 5, where did it come from? Well, I know initially it was started as a concept back in, what, 1989, I believe. Yes,
0: 1989.
1: And I know it was turned down. Uh, Joe Michael Straczynski, who most of you know from Spider-Man fame, Um, I think he did the Civil War in, uh, in the Marvel Universe. Uh, had created the show and tried to pitch it to Mar- Paramount, who turned him down but shortly afterwards came out with Deep Space Nine. I don't know if you were aware of that, Jim.
0: Um, you know, I, I was not until, ju- until you just mentioned it.
1: Yeah. Straczynski always took the high road on this, but let, let's be real, and that's one of the reasons why I was uh, teasing him. There has always been a strong rivalry, a big rivalry, between the Star Trek universe and the Babylon 5 universe.
0: That I knew. I've I've had uh, discussions myself with with fans. I happen to like both, so... Same Mm -hmm. here.
1: Babylon 5 was created originally with a full five-year plan. He wanted it to be a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. And he had alternatives, you know, in case the series was canceled early, though... Uh, he had noted that there would be problems if it was canceled before uh, season three finished.
0: Yes. He uh, he also uh, noticed, I think, on uh, as far as successful science fiction TV was concerned, that uh, shows lacked long-term planning, which prompted him to uh, come up with five goals for how he was going to conduct himself over these five years. First, his first uh, goal was to make good sci-fi and good television. Uh, Abbey, prior to that, it was uh, it was good sci-fi, but it may not necessarily have been good television. His second tenant was to take an adult approach. No th- cute kids. Right. He wanted to keep it reasonably budgeted. And uh, he wanted to take the sci-fi seriously by incorporating science... But keeping the characters the center of the story, and as you say, leaving out kids and cute robots. Also, he wanted to not have a utopian future. So those were some of the, some of the tenets that he used to uh, produce a story.
1: And if you listen to what Jim just said here, folks, a lot of the things that he's just described, these were firsts. Babylon 5 was the first to do these things and they've become so much of the standard by which we measure good science fiction serials.
0: Yes, and uh, another factor that figured in was Hill Street Blues. Straczynski saw what Hill Street Blues had done for police television shows and that's kind of the model that he also used. And
1: he had the entire series mapped out. He used to talk about having triple encrypted files that describe the entire show on his computer. But the reality is he had a large binder in his office in plain sight with everything mapped out. He had back doors for season endings. He had back doors for characters. All the major characters had a trigger that could be pulled uh, to deal with a character leaving or the story needing to take a different direction. And that did happen during the series. And another one of his first, he really had a large ensemble cast. You know, up until that point, it was a smaller cast. All the roles would get their little walk in, whether they were needed or not. If the character was a starring role on the series, they walked in, they said their line, they walked off. Yeah. Babylon 5 wasn't like that.
0: Well, and there was also a large number of regular guest stars that really added a lot to it. You know, for instance, uh, Walter Koenig's character of Al Bester appeared in a lot of shows, but he was definitely he wasn't a regular uh, on the series. But he he felt like he was.
1: Yes, and one that was one of the amazing things about the show they were able to get guest stars to come back year after year after year for the entire five year plan, and I think part of that was. ...due to the fact that Straczynski was shooting for such high quality of storytelling and character... ...and that he had the entire thing mapped out in advance. So there was some room for planning.
0: Well, and not only that, but I remember um, when I listened to Walter Koenig's uh, biography... ...he talked about the atmosphere that was on the set also... ...and how, how light it was, everybody was friendly... Nobody was trying to steal scenes. Um, it was definitely an ensemble uh, cast rather than one big star and and subordinates.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, I've heard that from every interview that I've heard done about the show. I've heard Box Leitner talk about it. I've heard Furlan talk about it. I've heard... Biggs talk about it before he passed away. Even you know Mir Furlan when she was on the diner uh, for her interview. That was all she seemed to want to talk about. Julie Caitlin Brown. She said the same thing just a couple weeks ago on the diner. Mm-hmm. For, there was some other firsts for Babylon Five as well. Not just not just what they've done with the characters. CGI special effects.
0: Yes. Which unfortunately did not translate to the television of that time very well. I, I thought I thought it was really great the big vista the big vistas and things that they put in there, but it seemed to me and it still does as I watch the uh the DVDs at home, that it, it's just slightly out of focus and not quite there. To me that would say that mid nineties? Uh, yeah. He was a a little ahead of his time there.
1: Standard definition television, they they were certainly acceptable. Uh, Yes. Yes. When you look at it on modern equipment, some of the dating that you're talking about definitely definitely shows. But there were some beautiful things that they did as far as, and we'll get into this a little bit later, as far as the Newtonian physics, as far as, as you say, the vistas. Mm -hmm. And... I think the biggest shame of the DVDs, and this isn't Joe's fault, but there were some problems in the mastering. And when you get the composite shots, special effects plus people, you you really get a degradation of quality.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: And speaking of modern equipment, that's another first for Babylon 5. I don't know if they were the first or just one of the first, but that was the first show shot in uh, 16 by 9 ratio.
0: Yeah, he, Straczynski was anticipating a future with the sixteen uh, by nine. That.
1: And you know, there's one other first that I've got to mention, and we'll probably get into this a little more with the uh, alien races. One of the things that really would frustrate me about science fiction television: you wanted an alien, fine, put a nose piece on. You wanted an alien, okay, listen ear caps on them. You want an alien? Okay, gee, we'll put uh, some contact lenses on them and give them a funky hairdo. Yes. Well, okay, Babylon 5 did have the funky hairdo, at least with the Centauri. Yes. (laughs) But with the rest, they're aliens. They were real aliens. I cannot believe what they did to create the Narn every week of the show. Right. And... You, there's times where you see Jakar stripped down to his waist, and you really believe this guy, this isn't a man in a lizard mask. Right. Th- this really is an alien creature, lizard background, but it was just incredibly believable.
0: Yes, and the quality of the costumes, the quality of the of the um, prosthetics and everything, you could you could still actually see the actor and who they were. It, it didn't get in the way of the, of the person that was playing. You could tell the actor that was Jakar. You could tell the actor that was Talon. They didn't...
1: I don't know how much of that is to the credit of the makeup, though obviously much of it is, and how much of that is to the credit of just the incredible cast that he assembled for this show.
0: Mm, that's true.
1: I mean, you look at the backgrounds. A lot of these actors had strong stage backgrounds, where you kind of have to overact your expressions, yes. for the st- for the stage, and it really carried through. Yes. You know, it Go ahead. You know, we, we I was just going to say we, we've been talking about we've been talking about the makeup and the alien races. What were some of those races? Uh, There were the major races, of course, human, Mambari, Narn, Centauri, Vorlon. Right. And, well, we know what the humans are. The Centauri looked more or less like us. Uh, They had a few significant differences. Right. Um, Can we say that Babylon 5 is the first primetime television show where we had full frontal nudity of a male?
0: Really? Now, I wasn't aware of that.
1: (laughs) Lando, Lando's poker game with Lanier.
0: Oh yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think we just got a whole bunch of people either never going to watch the show, or they're just going—they're scrabbling all over the place for uh, DVDs now.
0: (laughs) I don't know if we can count
1: that. (laughs) Let's just say the Centauri have a very different reproductive system.
0: Oh my goodness! Uh, Yes, Um, it, it was very interesting.
1: Now let's get out. Let's get out of the gut here. <laughs> uh, we, we definitely want to keep this as a family show. The other, other, the most noticeable aspects of the Centauri is the men tend to groom their hair into that high crest. The higher the crest, the more significant uh, their status in society.
0: Well, kind of, but you remember uh, the Emperor Cartesia? He had a very small crest on his head. So,
1: Yeah, and he was was intentionally going against the grain there, too.
0: Right. Okay.
1: And the women just had the single lock out on the back of their head. They tended to keep themselves bald until they were married, and then they went completely bald. Right. But they were the ones that most resembled the human. Probably the next in that regard, and the race that we had the most, shall we say, contact with, Right. Beyond that would be the Membari.
0: Yes, and they look—they looked quite human-like, just a little bit different around the eyes, and then the, of course, external. What would the you bone call?
1: crest instead of hair?
0: Yes, but they—they they were definitely very humanoid. <laughs>
1: the differences between human and Membari does become a plot point of the show. In fact,
0: most definitely, yes. Yeah, Delenn, she completely transforms, but um, that, I think, is a subject for a little later.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the Narn, as I had mentioned earlier, somewhat more, I don't want to say lizard because that would be more the Drazi, but salamander-like, orange-skinned. The ears are very different. They're almost membranes. Yes. Very warlike. Obviously, their sun is a lot redder than our sun, because when you see them in their chambers or in any of their quarters, there's a very distinct red hue to everything. Yes. Ah, and that leaves the Vorlons. Uh-huh. What can well, you say about the Vorlons?
0: Well, we, we never really see what a Vorlon looks like, and that's, that's brought up in the show quite often, except for that one time.
1: Which uh, we don't want to spoil.
0: Yes. We really don't know what is inside of Orlan's environment suit.
1: And that became a huge piece of speculation for many a year.
0: Yes. And I, to, I'll tell you what, even with that one reveal, I still don't think we really know what a Vorlon looks like. Now, I, go ahead. I think one of my favorite races is the Drazi.
1: Absolutely.
0: They are, they are just, they're great. Green. <laughs> Green, gray. Purple. <laughs> Yeah, and they have some really really strange customs.
1: <laughs> yep. The Drazi as a, you know, like you said, green. They they are very much more or less humanoid but very lizard-like. Yes. And that's another case where just the costuming was so impressive that they were able to act, that they were able to be expressive through that makeup.
0: Some heavy makeup.
1: The Bukiri, okay. another almost skeletal humanoid type race. Mm-hmm. The Vree, which we really don't see because they're always in a mask with that translator. All we what? know about them is they're insectoid.
0: Uh, well, they kind of resemble um, our, our classic alien with the large eyes and the head that comes down to a point. Uh, I guess you would call was them... Was that the Vree? The gray aliens, yes.
1: You know, what? I think you're right. I think I was wrong there. Who are Who are the ones in the mask... In the breathing, the respirators with the translator. That was not the breathing. Um They were insectoid.
0: Ah, uh, let's see. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't remember. It's been and long.
1: fans, one of the things to understand here, there are so many alien races, and they are so distinct, and they are so, well, alien, that it's becomes difficult to keep that much. I mean, it's a diverse, it is a diverse universe full of life. And, in fact, Babylon 5 itself, one of the things that was notable about the station is they had what they called the alien sector where they accommodated different atmospheric and different dietary requirements yes. for, di- for the different races. Not everyone breathed an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere. Right. Uh, in fact, some of them couldn't tolerate it at all. Oh, and there's one alien we can't forget. We, we really don't know their name because their name is actually several thousand uh, letters long. Okay. But The Shadows. Yes. And mm. I think probably on this show, the less we say now about The Shadows, the better. Yeah. But they are definitely the big mystery of the series.
0: Mm hmm. I always kind of like the Pachmara, too.
1: The Carrion Eaters. Yes. Yeah, a few murder investigations where they uh, had to pull in the Pakmara and uh, examine their stomachs. Yes, <laughs> they they were definitely a favorite. Yep. Now those second the secondary races that we've just mentioned had their own sort of organization that was called the League of Nonaligned Worlds. They were right. typically more or less the lesser advanced. Human, Mumbari, Narn, Centauri, Vorlan constituted the major races though the Vorlons tended to be a little reclusive. Yep. Ships that went into Vorlon space tended to have accidents. And the Vorlons more or less suggested that, well, if you don't want to have the accidents, you might not want to come here. Mm-hmm. And they were definitely powerful enough that they were able to uh, back their opinion.
0: Almost oh, definitely.
1: In fact, by the other race's standards, I... The, the Vorlons, just from raw power, were almost godlike.
0: Yes. It was that mystery that surrounded them of never being able to talk to them actually face-to-face that added to the wonder of it. And, you know, some, there were some people you mentioned the Vorlans to, and they were just like, okay, I'm out of here. I don't want anything to do with this. Yep. So a very feared, a feared and not understood race of people. Right.
1: And if you took like the major races, human, membari, et cetera, they're almost, if you took the example of the UN, they would sort of be the Security Council and then the League of Non-Aligned Worlds right. collectively had one vote. So that that was more or less the political structure of uh, Babylon 5. And speaking of political structure, there's a couple of political issues that were very central to the story, and I'm going to take them in reverse order of importance First is the Narn-Centauri conflict, which was something like 100 years ago, yes. where the Centauri had enslaved the Narn. The Narn had eventually drove them out, and the fallout and payback of that entire interaction was a big part of Babylon 5. It, it drove a lot of the major plot conflict, I think, in a way.
0: Oh, yes. It was, it was very, very back and forth all the time, but, but the Narn always seemed to get the short end of the stick in the deal. The Centauri were just absolutely bent on on putting the Narn down
1: reclaiming the old glory, I believe
0: is how Lando often put it yeah, that might have been his point of view, but I think there was just plain hatred from the Centauri to the Narn um, they just didn't want them around at all even when even when the Narn were not any longer a threat to anybody uh, the Centauri just wanted them gone.
1: Yes, absolutely. Frankly, the Narn had the same attitude. And I believe it might have been the Narn ambassador, Jakar, that had said the conflict will only end when one of them is gone. Yes. The other major conflict that's part of the background of the story is going to be the earth Membari War from yep. 10 years before Babylon 5.
0: Yes. And it was the one of the pivotal areas in there was where how the war ended
1: i ha- I have to make a short correction there though yes. it 's kind of hard to call it a war. It was more like a mass slaughter because the Mumbari are at least a thousand years more advanced than humans yes. technologically
0: at least yes i'll ha- i 'd have to uh, yes, I have to agree with that uh, the minbari were if they had gone on there there would no there would be no humans
1: yes, the only victory that The human race had in the entire war was one victory by uh, John Sheridan, who eventually became commander of Babylon 5. Yes. And a big part of this war is that the whole war was started by accident.
0: Yes, it was uh, a big misunderstanding of what one side saw as honoring the other, and then the other side taking exception to that and seeing it as a threatening maneuver.
1: Yep. And, you know, I just, I just realized something. In talking about a lot of this background, we've been talking about a lot of the characters. Yes. And we probably should mention a few of the characters, at least the major characters. Problem is, it's a large ensemble cast, as you said, and there are a lot of characters involved here. Yes. The captain, or not the captain, but the commander of the station, and the station is five miles long. Originally was Jeffrey Sinclair. Yes. And he needed to leave the show for personal reasons, as well as the direction the story was taken. Right. And he was replaced by John Sheridan, who was, I guess, a little more messianic in his nature. Yes. Any thoughts, comments on either of those two?
0: I was really disappointed when season two came back and Sinclair was no longer the commander because I really, really liked him. On the other hand, I'm not going to complain at all about John Sheridan, Sheridan and his way of handling things, especially and then eventually becoming the president. He took his job on the station seriously, but he didn't take himself too seriously.
1: Right. And because of that, I don't think Jeff Sinclair could have done what John Sheridan did.
0: No, he, I don't think Sinclair could have ever become president.
1: And likewise, there's no way John Sheridan could have had the influence and the impact that Jeff Sinclair did on the whole human Mambari relationship. Right. Second in command, Susan Ivanova. <laughs> you know, M likes to talk about strong women, and I had mentioned uh, Dylan earlier. <laughs> yeah. Susan Ivanova, Russian, scrappy, tough as nails, what else can you say about her?
0: Oh, she was just absolutely in command. She was very sure of herself most of the time. Uh, She knew what direction she wanted to go in. And when she laid down the law, she definitely backed it up. You could not dispute probably one of the strongest female characters in all of television or all of entertainment, actually.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that I truly loved about Ivanova was some of the lines that she was given.
0: The, uh, Straczynski must have loved her because he gave her all the best lines.
1: I, th- I, I think so. Those, some of the others got some pretty powerful... Okay, we've got to give him a sample. We'll hit the quirky side of Ivanova. No boom? No boom. No boom today. Boom tomorrow. There's always a boom tomorrow. What? Look, somebody's got to have some damn perspective around here. Boom.
0: Sooner or later. Boom!
1: And what's nice about that quote, is, you know, that's season one.
0: Mm. That quote
1: was prophetic.
0: Yeah. There was, there was definitely a lot of boom.
1: Yep. And I think another, if you really want to get a nature of Ivanova... Uh, I think this one was one that we both agreed was our favorite Ivanova quote.
0: Firing control.
1: This is the White Star Fleet. Negative on surrender.
0: We will not stand down.
1: Who is it? Identify yourself.
0: Who am I? I am Susan Ivanova. Commander. Daughter of Andrei and Sophie Ivanov. I am the right hand of vengeance
1: and the boot that is going to kick your sorry ass all the way back to Earth, sweetheart.
0: I am death incarnate and the last living thing that you are ever going to see. God sent me. I get chills when I- that's, mm-hmm.
1: You just stole my line, Jim. I get, we've got to explain the context of this one, though. In, 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 there's almost a civil war going on between, uh, human in, in, within the human government at this point. Yes. And the fleet of ships that she was annoyed with had just slaughtered a refugee convoy. Thousands of women and children just slaughtered. Yes. That was Susan Ivanova Angry. hmm Like you said, probably one of the strongest female characters in science fiction genre. And, of course, we couldn't uh, leave out Michael Garibaldi either. Security chief.
0: Another, another one with some great lines and, some, and, and a lot of personality. Probably some of the best character development for all of the characters went to, to Garibaldi.
1: With his alcoholism history and, and his interaction with the Psycorps, the telepathic group, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, well, then there's his uh, second favorite thing in the whole, in the whole universe.
1: Duck Dodger's in the 23rd and a half century.
0: Yes. <laughs> that poster that hang o- hung over his bed, he wanted to show it to everybody.
1: Amazingly, he got Dylan to sit down and watch cartoons with him. You know, actually, what's even more amazing is Warner Brothers' Bugs Bunny cartoons are still around in the 23rd century, 24th century.
0: Oh, they'll never die.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, and the other character that had an immense amount of character development in that respect was uh, Stephen Franklin, the chief medical officer of the station.
0: Yes, the doctor. Went through some real rough times for, for quite some time. Didn't have a great relationship with his father. Didn't exactly follow the, the family line. He kind of went off in his own direction. An, an excellent physician, but had some self-doubt there.
1: And he compensated for that with trying to overdo everything. Yes. And some of the things he... Resorted to in order to quote succeed, unquote, really is what led to his downfall and eventual recovery. Yes. The two other humans to mention at this point are going to be our resident telepaths, Talia Winters and Lita Alexander. Yes. Started with Talia Winters, and that character left mid season, and Lita Alexander took over that role. Yes. Though actually, in the gathering, in the pilot, the resident telepath was Lita Alexander.
0: Now, both of of the the telepaths, the resident telepaths, had a lot of layers to them. Later on in, in the series, their stories came out. You found that they weren't actually who they appeared to be. It was especially in the case of Talia Winters. Her turnaround just absolutely floored me.
1: I didn't see it coming.
0: No, me either. I mean that was that was incredible.
1: I was blown away by the turn of direction that Lita eventually took. Especially yeah. in the fifth season.
0: Yeah. Uh becoming becoming um well, she she never did want to play ball with uh with Sycor at all anyway, but she did because otherwise she wouldn't have had a place to live, she wouldn't have had food. Uh, she became kind of the Harriet Tubman for the telepaths.
1: Right. Well, that actually started with Talia, but and this is where those back doors that Straczynski had written worked so well. When it came time for that story to pick up in season five, Lita just seamlessly filled that role. Yes. It was just brilliant writing here. Mm-hmm. Zach Allen, security chief, uh, actually assistant, was the assistant. until Garibaldi's direction took some different turns. Fun character.
0: I liked Zach Allen. I really did. It was really hard when he first came in to take him seriously, but he turned around and became an excellent security chief and was there till the end.
1: Part of the reason I was hard to take him seriously at first is every time I saw him initially the song grease lightning from grease would run through my mind
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah i was trying to place him you just you just nailed it right
1: there and of course his role on taxi as well
0: okay now see i never watched taxi so
1: <laughs> my parents did i didn't so it was unavoidable for me to miss a few and of course, the other human that has to be mentioned at this point is Marcus Cole.
0: Oh, yes. Marcus Cole. And that is my wife's favorite character.
1: That, you, I think that's a lot of the ladies' favorite male
0: lead. When I, do, when I do a rewatch, when Marcus comes along in the third season, Diane's there. She's watching it. Before and after, uh, no.
1: <laughs> and all I will say about Marcus at this point is that character alone is proof that Strazensky when he wrote the series, the story and the characters took absolute precedence because of, just because of Marcus's path that he followed.
0: Yeah, and you you never he was he was very serious about his role in the Rangers. He was very serious about a lot of things, but what a sense of humor. What a sense of humor. And the guy could fight like nobody's business.
1: Yep. Absolutely. What about a few of the aliens? We mentioned the Centauri,
0: right? Already,
1: and
0: one Centauri we didn't talk about was Veer.
1: Veer was Lando Lon- Malari was the ambassador, representative right. to Babylon Five. Right. Veer,
0: Veer. He was he was just a lovable guy who wanted to do right with everybody. He Flounder, just, he, yeah, and and he didn't always approve of everything that was. Uh, going on as far as Lando and the government was concerned, but he he uh, he was a grounding force for Lando. Uh, when Lando finally did start respecting Veer, he guided him quite well.
1: As far as maturing, I think Veer probably had the greatest level of maturation of any character on the series.
0: Yes, he grew up. He grew up on Babylon Five.
1: Absolutely. Uh, ambassador Delin, we mentioned in passing, yeah. but in a little more detail, she was the Membari ambassador. Very mysterious, very, well, she was a member of the religious caste. Membari society was built around three castes, religious, warrior, and worker. And she was a representative of the religious caste.
0: And wise beyond her years.
1: She, like Ivanova, was an incredibly powerful female lead. She tended to be a little more subtle than Ivanova. Yeah,
0: she got her shots in, though.
1: (laughs) When she took off the gloves, you did not want to be in the same solar system.
0: No. Very, very deeply emotional character. When the times were bad, she would rise to the occasion, but at the same time, it would affect her on a personal level. Very much. That, yes, uh, there were a couple of times where she would just break down, but don't get on her bad side.
1: Absolutely. And she was assisted by Will Robinson. Yeah, now, <laughs> Billy Moomy played the character of Lanier, Lanier. Her, at- her attache.
0: Yes, a, a guy that just—he uh, was, he was a student and was her student and assistant— but he also he, he didn't really need to be anybody's student. He was he was his own person. Um, I, what I liked mostly about Lanier was his naivete uh, you know his, and, and the way he was written, the things that he would discover along the way and and you could be there along with him discovering everything and the reveals uh, you know especially uh, I think my favorite Thing Lanier did was when he fixed that uh, motorcycle for Garibaldi.
1: Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that. Yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> took, the, took the thing and rebuilt it and then went for a ride. And it was just, the, and, and, you know, you could just feel the fun of, of new discovery that Lanier brought to the show.
1: Of the main cast that we've seen so far, Veer and Lanier. Really are sort of that everyman that we kind of relate to and grow with. The other characters that we've mentioned so far, th- there's, they have the problems, they have the growth. In fact, they have amazing growth. But there's an epicness to them that sets them above, that sets them above and beyond. Sort of yeah. like Aragorn or Frodo, you know, from Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Yet it's Sam that we tend to relate to the deepest, at the deepest level. Yeah. And Veer and Lanier really sort of fit that role.
0: Yeah. And their interactions were quite humorous.
1: Very much so. Yes. <laughs> the last of the major races to mention that we haven't yet already would be Ambassador Dakar of the Narn. Wow. Talk about another character path.
0: Yeah. He had some interesting appetites. Um, <laughs> that, that, you know, wow. It, it's Family show. Yeah, no. What I'm trying to what I'm trying to say is, is this was a very complicated character. He didn't like Malari. He did like Malari. Uh, he wanted to kill Malari. He, he wanted tried
1: to, to kill Malari multiple yeah, times.
0: He wanted to help Malari. It wound up being Malari's bodyguard. Took a beating for Malari. I mean, the you know the guy was just complex.
1: And he started out, he started out so spiteful and petty, and, I mean, you did not like this character at first.
0: Mm, well, yeah. I, yes. not at,
1: I mean, you love you, you the character as, it was a character you loved to dislike. Yes. I mean, he, there was nothing positive about him at first.
0: Now that you mention that, yes, I remember that. He was, he was a bit of a snake. Um,
1: Absolutely.
0: Loved to get under Malari's skin. Uh, lived for that. And he became as deep and as
1: philosophical as D'Lynn by the end of the series.
0: Oh, well, yes. Uh, as Citizen Jakar. And <laughs> I especially uh, remember how he became worshipped by by other Narn as being a almost a prophet.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean – you can almost borrow a little bit from Buddhism in that regard.
0: Yes, uh, as far as the statues, he didn't care for that. But uh, <laughs> correct, he didn't want the graven images. But exactly, he, but 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 he was uh, setting down his experiences and his reflections on those in his book. Uh, I think it replaced the popularity of the Book of Jaquan.
1: The Book of Jakar. Be- yes, it became the eventually the lead, the primary religious text for the race. Now, he was assisted. He had an attaché, but she only lasted a couple of seasons. The Toth. Yes. And that was played originally by Julie Caitlin Brown, who was just recently interviewed on the Sci-Fi Niner, but she couldn't handle the makeup. She had reactions to the makeup and had to leave the series. Yes. And was replaced by, I believe, Mary Kay Adams.
0: I think you're right
1: and eventually ended up being recalled to Narn. Right. That is a huge cast of characters though. And of course there was the Vorlan, Kosh that we've mentioned already.
0: Right. And
1: what more can you say about him?
0: Lieutenant Keffer.
1: Keffer is an interesting was an interesting case.
0: Mm-hmm. He was
1: only in season 1. And this was one case the, the, there's some anecdotes here. This is the one case where the suits "Quote unquote," interfered with the show. Oh, they wanted someone on the series that was a little more action-oriented, mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: a little more Captain Kirkish, I guess is one way of putting it. Yeah, and he, they had him written into season two, and Straczynski dealt with him, shall we say? Yes. By the end of season two, he used he used him effectively in the storytelling, but he. He had an interesting resolution at the end of season two. And from that point on, the suits didn't interfere with the show again.
0: Yeah. Now, if I recall, he sacrificed himself. Did he not?
1: More or less.
0: Okay. That's correct.
1: Okay. He was will- he didn't necessarily intend to give his life, but right. He was willing to,
0: but he, and he accepted it with, with a lot of honor.
1: Correct. Like I said, that's just a huge ensemble cast. And as we said, If the story didn't call for that person, that person wasn't there. There there wasn't a simple walk-in. There wasn't a simple one-liner. Wesley Crusher didn't walk across the stage and say, hi.
0: (laughs) Let's not leave out one other very important character, a pivotal character, uh, and that would be Captain Elizabeth Lockley.
1: Season five, yes.
0: And probably one of the most unpopular characters of the whole series. But I don't know why, because I really liked her.
1: <laughs> I liked her, too. It was a great character. It was a great background story. She handled things her way. But I, I can tell you why a lot of fans didn't like her. She wasn't Susan Ivanova.
0: Very true. And I think they kind of tried to write her like Ivanova at first and realized it wasn't working out.
1: I think part of it was that, and I think part of it was they were a little timid with the character.
0: Yeah. Well, and and I think the reason for that was is simply because they were following more of the uh, Sheridan storyline uh, as president, the Sheridan Delenn thing, and so I don't I don't think really Elizabeth Lockley got actually ever got off the ground. There was not a lot of character development. There was some. We got a little bit of background. But there wasn't the, uh, the same time given to that character.
1: Exactly. And I think we'll come back to this a little bit when we talk about Season 5. Because okay. I, do through, I do want to run through the general storyline. But I think what you're talking about there really kind of affects the scope of the story. And that may—I think—that may have had something to do with it as well. Yes. What about some of the shorter-term characters? Now we're going to do a five and five. You, you picked the subject for this. Yes. You picked the five and five subject, which is
0: our sci-fi five and five tonight is our five favorite guest stars on Babylon Five, and they can be recurring characters, they can be one-time characters, but that's that's where we're the direction we're headed. And, boy,
1: there were a lot of those, too. Yes. You had mentioned uh, Alfred Bester already. Yep. Uh, There was Mr. Morden. I hate to say it. I kind of put Warren Keffer almost in that category. Ah. You had mentioned Emperor Cartesian of the Centauri. Right. There was Lorien, which is another one of the big mysteries. Right. There was the head of the warrior cast, Naroon. Mm Mm-hmm. Brother Theo. I mean, there were just tons of great characters. King Arthur.
0: Oh, yes. <laughs> we,
1: we even had King Arthur as a guest star.
0: Yes, Michael York was outstanding. It uh, was. Uh, that was another awesome, powerful story. One character there was Byron.
1: Yes. And, Hobbs. Wow, yeah.
0: Catherine Sakai. Yes.
1: And I know there were some follow-up books if you really want the end of her story. I can't remember the title. Maybe I'll get it to uh, Scott for the show notes. But we find her final story in one of the follow-up books which is canonical
0: yes and then two characters together that i i enjoyed and that was zathras absolutely drawl absolutely (laughs) uh zathras was well zathras is zathras
1: zathras is zathras
0: and he had what was it 12 brothers and they were all named zathras
1: no no one brother was named zathras okay the another brother was named Zathras. Yes. And the other brother was na- you know the other brother was named Zathras. And yeah. you have to listen carefully to hear the difference. Zathras, <laughs> Zathras, got it? Yes. <laughs> okay. Those of you who have watched the show would understand that a little interchange. Yes. But yeah, you could not leave Zathras out out of. I think we're going to hold off on any more discussion of recurring characters, though, until we come back to our fiver. Very well. You know, we've talked a lot about characters, and anyone who's read my blog over at the thechristiangeek.net knows that one of my complaints about a lot of science fiction and a lot of serial television is there is such a focus on characters that story often takes a second place to the characters. That's where I think Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, ran into problems in the second half of season three and season four. They sacrificed story for character. Yes. That was not allowed in Babylon 5. Straczynski insisted on rich, detailed character development, but he also insisted that they have a rich, detailed universe and story to grow and interact in. And in fact, one of the things that was interesting about Babylon 5 was you were not allowed to deviate from script. You, ha- you were required to follow the script. There was no improv, because a misplaced improv could change story elements that would happen two years in the future. He's actually discussed this on the Internet. And another important part about the scripts were the number of scripts that were written by Joe Straczynski himself. I Gallic. believe he wrote, what, close to half, around half of season one. I believe he wrote all of season two, three, and four, though there might have been one or maybe two scripts that he didn't. And he wrote all but two, maybe three scripts of season five.
0: Yes, according to what I've learned, he wrote, overall, 92 of the 110 episodes of the series,
1: that gives you a very cohesive story.
0: And uh, he shared that he shared those duties also with Douglas Netter.
1: Right, Doug Netter was the executive producer. He he was the one who fought the wars with the studios, so Straczynski could be unencumbered to create. All right, that that's where the story came from. But and this is going to be a tough one because we don't want to give away spoilers to the people who haven't seen it. Right, but The story itself, season one was, in some ways, fairly typical. Commander Sinclair was the chief officer on Babylon 5. He was the station commander. Right. It was a little less serial, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It introduced a lot of the characters, and it started to set some of the pieces in place.
0: And gave us some, uh, not a whole lot, but a little bit of background. There was, in season one, there was a lot of tension as... Uh, the different races came together you could see that there was a, a big mission ahead for babylon 5 to fulfill their purpose and and it was going to be a real challenge to get everybody working in the same direction
1: and then in seasons 2 3 and 4 and i think we probably need to take those on just as a whole frankly because they are so tightly bound together yes we've got some cast changes in deenz 's case, when we talk about cast changes we 're really talking about some changes. We have the Shadow War, which is the central part of that middle story
0: which which was the vehicle for bringing all the races together for a common cause.
1: absolutely, and it actually had a bit of a surprising ending.: yes, it did some people some people were a little critical of it, but that ending set the stage to resolve the Earth Rebellion, and that had an incredibly satisfying ending, I thought.
0: Oh, yes, most definitely.
1: (laughs) And there was one other major conflict. It was one of the pieces set in place in Season 1, but it was really developed in Season 2, and it actually became the vehicle that eventually drove the Shadow War, and that was the Narn Centauri War. Yes, you you had mentioned the Narn-Centauri war earlier. Mm-hmm. What what are your thoughts on its driving?
0: The Narn-Centauri war was again it was it was just about hatred. However, I think there were certain members of both societies that were weary of this conflict, realizing that the differences were never going to get solved. And one of the one of the neat things about it was one of, the very, one of the main characters regretted what he had to do. He followed through with it. He didn't want to. He had no problem with these people other than what the political line of his government was handing down. And I believe that as, as he and his counterpart on the Narn got together and got to know each other, I think there was actually an uneven affection for each other.
1: There absolutely was, I think at the very end that lack of affection became a bonded friendship within the areas of mutual understanding that they had.
0: One might even say also a forbidden friendship.
1: Yes. And that relationship there is one of the things that is actually worth mentioning because we see the outcome of Lando and Jakar's relationship in season one. Yes. And the the this will be a mild spoiler, but we see their hands around each other's throats. In fact, Lando tells us that's how he's going. He knows how he's going to die already. Right. It's not what you think. No, it, it isn't. Not at all.
0: That, that was definitely a mild spoiler, and but not out of place.
1: It's, not, out, it's not an out-of-place spoiler. It's something that is revealed in the first couple of episodes of the series. Yes. But you cannot explain it to someone who hasn't seen the show because there's five years of development. And that's one of the things that Joe Straczynski does that's really interesting. He tells us how the series is going to end at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the magic is the journey there. Yes, This is just one of the examples of that. And the Earth Rebellion, which we've already mentioned, what, what is there to say about the Earth Rebellion?
0: The Earth Rebellion, completely... Politically fueled a single minded politician who saw himself as a dictator just about brought down the human race.
1: Very much so. Yeah. One thought about the Earth Rebellion is in the same way that the Narn Centauri War drove the Shadow War, the Shadow War, in a way, drove the Earth Rebellion.
0: I think they were all totally interconnected. There was no real single single war. It it was just a matter of a lot of political maneuvering going on.
1: And a lot of things happening in the shadows, if you can pardon the pun. Yeah. You know, and where a lot of science fiction shows the scope is local, the scope's a little more restricted. In Babylon 5, the scope is galactic.
0: Yes, it's pan-galactic. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, which talking about the scope. Let's talk about Season 5 for just a moment. We've already mentioned a little bit about it. Season 5 is really, by a lot of fans, considered the least liked of the five seasons.
0: I'm wondering if that isn't because all the wars were over? <laughs>
1: I think part of it's that. I think part. I think a big part of it is people didn't like Lockley. Because Season 5 is often thought as not being a good season, and mm-hmm. Straczynski said at the very beginning, he was wanting season five to be a proper denouement for the story. Yes. Because what do we have in season five? We have the fall of Centauri Prime. Right. Th- that's probably one of the most tragic story arcs of the entire series. Yes. Just the pain and suffering and sacrifices made there. Right. We have the telepath war, which contains one of my favorite lines of the show. You're not the only one who's been touched by a warlong. Right. It has the ranger arc. That includes Lanier's story. It has the building of the Alliance that's going to last a thousand plus years. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good stuff in season five.
0: Oh, yeah. And the moving of the galactic government to a new location is in there. Well, You think maybe there was too much jammed into season five, and that might have been might have been part of the problem
1: i don't know i think it's best described by looking at a different example let's look at lord of the rings okay the scouring of the shire is one of the favorite pieces of the books for a lot of people Mm -hmm. you notice in the movies it was completely left out in fact the last half hour of lord of the rings return of the king in the movies is what some people have complained to be one false ending after another. Mm -hmm. As all the storylines, all the plot points, at least all the major plot points are wrapped up and wrapped up very neatly. Mm -hmm. Some people just want to keep everything flash, bang, move, 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 action, action, action. And Babylon 5 took the approach of a novel. It closed up the storylines. You had your answers. There's no mysterious chapel with the jump asides like you had in lost right there's no bizarre retcons where you have to write yourself out of a corner like you did in battlestar galactica Mm -hmm. you've got a clean concise wrapping up of the storyline and there's also some hints some very good hints about just the way life goes on too right and people aren't used to that in serial television and i think that's what a lot of the problem was as well very true one last thing I want to talk about before we talk about some of the legacies of Babylon 5 is a little bit about the Babylon 5 universe itself. In the introduction we played, the description of Babylon 5 is pretty accurate. Massive space station, five miles long, neutral territory, basically a UN for the nations themselves. Right. Right. The ship produces gravity by spinning. It's a cylinder, right? rotating cylinder that spins. It's not the ring-type station. The universe itself is unique. And more importantly, the universe of Babylon 5 is very real.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, where Babylon 5, the station itself, is positioned is at a Lagrange point, which if you're not familiar with what that is, it's where gravity between and around planets and moons balances out exactly so there isn't you don't need a great deal of fuel to maintain your position you're it's just there because everything is very balanced there is real science in the show the, it's just the real science the science of the show is not the focus of the plot
1: but bad science usually doesn't distract from the show And you really see that in, you're mentioning the station being at a Lagrange point. Look at the ships when they're out in space, especially the fighters. Yes. It's dizzying sometimes because you have full Newtonian physics.
0: Absolutely. A body in motion tends to stay in motion unless it's acted on by an external force.
1: You have ships flipping sideways. You have ships flying in every direction. It's not everything in one flat plane like an airplane moved to space. Yes. It really is three-dimensional space flight, three-dimensional space combat. And if you're not ready for it, it can be almost dizzying. The races we've talked about as far as the Babylon 5 universe, and when you get to their home planets, you see how that influence, how their environment influenced their culture and how it influenced their appearances and how it influenced where they come from and where their motives are. It's real.
0: Yeah, it's it's extremely plausible. You you just you can immerse yourself in this show and these people they become very real. You care about them or you get very angry at them or you hate them. But they are they are personalities that are very well developed.
1: You believe them. Yes. You you absolutely believe them. Jakar is not some guy in a lizard mask or a salinamander mask. He really is Jakar. Yes. The technologies, too, reflect the races. Oh, yes. The Centauri, uh, the Narn, humans, of course, have much more traditional technologies. The Mimbari tend to focus a lot on crystalline technologies, mostly because of the structure of their planet. Yes. Then there's the Vorlan and Shadows. We're talking organic technology here.
0: And that is fascinating to me.
1: Incredibly um, so.
0: Yeah. As a musician, uh, the I can't remember what character it was, but they were hidden. Was it Lita that was hidden in the Vorlon ship or no?
1: No, it was a guest star. It was a physician. Right. President Clark's physician.
0: That's right. And when, when he came out, he says, the ship was singing to me.
1: Vorlon ships are alive.
0: Yes, they are. They are life forms in themselves. As a matter of fact, it seemed to me that the the entire Vorlon mystique involved the entire race, each individual, their technology, and everything was a single living entity.
1: Yeah, the the bond the bond between them. What was the line? We are all Kosh.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: And the shadow vessels were living entities, too, yes. of a sort. A very darker, more sinister sort, but...
0: And then, yeah, as when... when uh, I had a little bit of a spoiler here, but when, when Kosh died, he was put on board his ship and sent to Oblivion.
1: Yeah, and well, speaking of ships, one last piece that has to be mentioned as far as the technology is concerned are the White Star ships.
0: Oh, yes. And they incorporated organic components.
1: It was sort of a hybrid between Mumbari and Vorlant technology.
0: Although I wouldn't want to try to sleep on one.
1: No, well, okay, that that's that's the Mambari themselves. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen the series, the Mambari sleep on angled beds. About 40, degree, 30, 45 degree angled beds.
0: Yes. And how they keep from sliding off on the floor, I'll never know.
1: Yep. All right. Legacies of Babylon five. What did Babylon five leave science fiction fans? I think you mentioned some of that in the beginning, as far as incredible storytelling plus incredible characters.
0: Yes. Well-developed characters, uh, engaging stories, new worlds.
1: Yes. And I think, you know, I think in that regard, I think Babylon 5 is still the standard to live up to with regard to storytelling and character development. I haven't seen a series yet that has matched the level of coherence you see in Babylon 5 yet.
0: No, it also also reflects our society, especially at this time when getting along is so necessary because this world is becoming a much smaller place every day and we have to be able to get along in the world with others and that it's not just a matter of just all of a sudden boom one day you wake up and and you're full of tolerance and love for other people but it is a struggle to get over your own prejudices your own societal influences and things like that to become accepting of others
1: If you look at the world today and the situations of today and go back and look at the story in Babylon 5, Joe Straczynski was prescient, as far as I'm concerned. How could he see the future like he did?
0: I I agree to a point. I seriously think it is a theme that has been playing out throughout our history.
1: I agree with that, absolutely.
0: And, and will be for quite some time to come.
1: In fact, I think a better way of phrasing what I just said, it's amazing the way that Joe Straczynski understands and can relate the human condition throughout history. Yes. I think there's one other, and this is a little bit lighter side, I think there's one other important legacy that Babylon 5 left us. Up until that point... And I I know it's not necessarily true, but up until that point, good science fiction, serious science fiction, tended to be defined by Star Trek and what Star Trek was. Star Trek, the original series, Star Trek, The Next Generation. Yes. Babylon 5 proved that that was not the definition of acceptable science fiction on television. It was the show that broke the mold.
0: I'd like to think of it more as adding to what was actually possible exactly and and it just it took what we had uh, as as a huge Star trek fan it it really showed that you can make a show that that there were massive numbers of characters you could care for, not just the central seven, and that you could have a good story arc that that spanned an entire series and made sense, uh, there's just so much there, you know. And uh, granted, Deep Space Nine, which is uh, said to be copying Babylon 5, or it's also been said the other way, incorporated that story arc uh, during the same time. Voyager went that direction, And so did Enterprise. So many of the series that followed uh, Battlestar Galactica for that. BSG,
1: Firefly, Lost, Fringe, Continuum. You know, in a lot of ways, you you have to ask the question, would we have had these shows the way they were without Babylon 5? Yes. And my answer is no, we wouldn't have. Was that a yes as in a good point, or was that a yes as in uh, no, we would have had the shows?
0: Oh, no. It's... it's, (laughs) No, it's definitely a good point. Probably it's it's an integral part of the evolution of science fiction on television.
1: This is one of the reasons why Babylon 5 was my number two on my 5 and 5, uh, I guess, last year on the top five science fiction television series. Mm-hmm. The things that it did to open up the genre were just amazing.
0: Yeah, it wasn't about gadgets. It wasn't about... It was about people. It was about um, different people coming together in, in situations and finding ways to solve problems that weren't necessarily the best ways. You know, there were a lot of human, there were, I say human, there were a lot of flaws in the characters and nobody was perfect. No. Nope. It, it, it was just a whole new idea for television.
1: And it set the standard, and it set the stage for everything since. Yes. Okay, Jim, I think we've largely talked the show to death. I'm pretty sure we've either gotten some people encouraged to watch it, or we've scared them away from the show for good. Hopefully more of the former rather than the latter. But that said, you had picked the subject for our five and five. Top five guest stars...
0: Top five guest stars, recurring or one-offs, either one.
1: Do you have yours in order, f- yeah. bottom to top?
0: Yes, five, four, three, two, one.
1: Mine are in the same order. You give yours, and then I'll give mine, and we'll just work our way up to the top.
0: Okay, my number five is Marshall Teague starring as Talon. While Jakar was writing his his wisdom, Talon took it upon himself in an extremely honorable way to take care of Jakar. And he was just an absolute honorable character, very Klingon-like, but without all the bravura that that goes along with being a Klingon.
1: He was a very calm character, even though he was as good in a fight as any Klingon. There was a a peace about him.
0: He was very deadly.
1: Ronin. Japanese Ronin. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. My number five. Brad Dourif as Brother Edward in Passing Through Gethsemane.
0: Oh, yes.
1: (laughs) The two personalities that he has to play. This is not a loss of innocence story. This is a destruction of innocence story. Yes. And the kind of self-sacrifice that one would give for justice.
0: Yeah, I, I felt so bad for this guy. He didn't know what direction to go in, and the reveal of his character of, of why he was the way he was just—it just made me sad.
1: It was one of the few episode. Actually, it was one of the few television shows that has actually brought me to tears. Mm-hmm. And it that did that. Yeah. Okay, your number
0: four. My number four is Ed Wasser as Mr. Morden. What a, what a sleazy, smarmy character. <laughs> you know, the guy you love to hate, you, he had an agenda. He had entities, I'll say entities with him, backing <laughs> him up. But you just you just knew this guy was just absolutely manipulating everybody. You know, the guy you love to hate. Uh, I especially liked the way uh, Veer predicted his end, and it came true.
1: Yes, that, that, that was probably one of the most classic payoffs.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm not going to say any more about that, because you just got to see the show to appreciate it.
1: Ed Washer wasn't on my guest star list. I'll tell you that now. But Mm -hmm. for one reason, I understand exactly why he's there. Mm -hmm. And the main reason he wasn't there is even when he wasn't on the show, his influence was on the show. Yes. I, I, it's hard to, it was hard for me to look at him as a guest star. Okay. My number, my number four, Wayne Alexander, as Sebastian, Jack Sebastian, in Comes the Inquisitor.
0: You know, uh, that one almost made my list. Yeah, he was awesome. He was chilling. Yes. He
1: took the glasses off on the Benevolence of the Vorlons. Mm -hmm. And my saying that, folks, that is not a spoiler. If you have not seen the show, that is not a spoiler.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, was, he played that so well. Uh,
1: wow. And the yeah. reveal on the character's background just is amazing.
0: Yep, must be seen.
1: I will give one quote from Mr. Sebastian. You are the right people in the right place in the right time. Yes. The question he was sent to answer. Mm-hmm. You're number three.
0: My number three. Tim Chote as Zathrys.
1: <laughs> okay, he's my number two.
0: <laughs> no, Zathras was just a fun, lovable character. Played extremely well. You, you, you felt so bad for him, and he was not afraid to let you know why you needed to feel bad for him. Uh, just, just a fun character.
1: I think there's a quote. I think a quote from Zathrys is the best way to explain the character, okay?
0: All right. Zathras is used to being beast of burden to other people's needs. Very sad life. Probably have very sad death. But at least there is symmetry. Yes.
1: <laughs> that is Zathrus, friends. If you have not seen Zathrus, that yes. is Zathras.
0: In a nutshell.
1: <laughs> My number three is going to throw some people off. Michael O'Hare as Jeff Sinclair in the episode War Without End. Yes, the season one commander, the regular. Mm -hmm. He comes back in season three to finish the story. And it closes the loop on what is probably the most well-done time travel story in science fiction up until Continuum so far.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Continuum is utterly brilliant in that regard. but. Jeff Sinclair's return in season three. And as I said, it gives us the definitive answers where the human Mambari situation lie. Yeah. And your number two.
0: My number two is John Vickery as Neroon, And mostly because of this guy's voice. I mean, that, that voice is just incredible. And uh, the other thing I liked about him was, as a warrior, his honor was without question. Um, he had a single-minded direction. He had his job to do. He was not going to, to go one way or the other. But, yeah, he, Nerun, I loved seeing any anytime he was on the screen. Loved to listen to that voice, too.
1: Naroon. he didn't make my list, mm-hmm. but Naroon was a guest starring character that had the kind of character development that any other series would have reserved for a lead.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And as you said, his voice was incredible. The man had golden pipes. Yes. My number two, Tim Choate as Athras, which we've already discussed. Yes. And th- there's nothing more that, that can be said. No. I have a, I have a strong feeling we're going to have the same number
0: one. I do, too. Go ahead. (laughs) My number one character is Walter Koenig as Bester.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: You you know, the the guy came on a complete opposite of what he was on Star Trek. Manipulative. Ruthless. Yeah. Not afraid to go behind a person's back just uh, an, a total megalomaniac. He just thought he was the greatest thing in, in, in the whole universe. It was such a turnaround from Chekhov that it was like, wow, th- this guy has some acting chops.
1: And this is where he really broke the stereotype. Yes. I love the line, I'm a telepath, do the math.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: <laughs> and you find out he's not... The head of the Psy Corps, the governmental body that includes all telepaths, he's simply one of their enforcement officers called the Psy Cops. Psy-Cop. And he's completely on his own agenda. Yeah. This, this was one of the best characters. He was only in a couple of episodes each season.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But you looked forward to those episodes.
0: Nobody liked him.
1: <laughs> you love to hate the guy.
0: Uh, and on and well, on the show, nobody
1: liked him. Nobody liked him on the show at all.
0: He'd show he'd show up, and it was absolute. Everybody would absolutely start diving for cover because they knew that he could look right into their souls if he wanted to. And he
1: had no ethical hesitation to do so.
0: Absolutely
1: yeah we're talking a real piece of slime, i think was the way you described him earlier
0: uh no that was that was morden
1: that was morden no i would he, put i would put the same i would put the same label on bester though
0: i I don't know he, i think bester had too much class to be called slime
1: <laughs> i'll get that that is a point that I will definitely grant you
0: you know he absolutely he he, he did
1: ha- have class
0: he had a lot of class but um but that power. Just, you know, he, he loved power, and that's what he was about. And he had power over everybody.
1: I think, that's, I think that's a good five and five. Folks, one of the things, there were so many outstanding characters that came in as guest roles in the show that, except for Bester and Zathras, I did not expect uh, Jim and I to have the same list. There's just so many. And mm-hmm. these are amazing actors that they pulled in for it. Uh there, there's a I've got there's a few special mentions that I've got off just off the top of my head. June Lockhart in Quality of Mercy. Yes. Uh Sarah Douglas from Superman uh, one and Superman Two. Yep. Uh played Death Walker. We had Michael York playing Arthur in one episode. Majel Barrett of Star Trek Fame played Lady Morella, uh the Emperor's well, one of the emperor's wives. Yes. One of the Centauri emperor's wives. It just was incredible guest casts, and sometimes there weren't any guest girls. Oh, yeah.
0: Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Oh uh, wow! Yes. Louis uh, Truan as brother Theo. John Shuck. Uh, as Draw. Yes. Marjorie Monahan. Oh gosh, she and she was really awesome. Or, excuse me, Star Trek fans would recognize her from the Voyager episode where she played um, the one with the Grindler. I can't remember what episode, what, what mm-hmm. her, her episode was, but yeah, there, Melissa Gilbert.
1: Melissa Gilbert, she,
0: yes. Although a lot of people will roll their eyes at her because of her role as Laura Ingalls Wilder.
1: She was no Laura Ingalls in Babylon 5.
0: No, absolutely not. Yeah, just, it was, it was a who's who of, of television.
1: All right. Jim, I think we've pretty much Shanghai the Diner for as long as we can probably get away with here. Yes. Do you have any last thoughts?
0: Anybody who says they're a sci-fi fan, a fan of science fiction television, should really give Babylon 5 a look. Right, Scott?
1: Yeah, in fact, Scott, I'll make a deal. If you want the diner back, you have to agree you're going to watch Babylon 5. Is that a fair deal?
0: Yes. Yes, it is.
1: Okay, Scott, just understand we're going to hold you to that commitment here. And when Jim comes after you for not watching the show, he's going to put aside his batla and come at you with a Mimbari fighting pike, right, Jim?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> All right, folks. Thank you for listening. Uh, Scott, you can have your show back now. Let's say goodbye, Jim.
0: Okay. You have a great evening. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.